Very good, honey. Thank you very much. Well, last week we, uh, we found and examined one of the great truths found in the Bible. As you know, we're in Romans chapter 9. And uh, I can't tell you how important it is for you to grasp the book of Romans. Uh, I've said this almost every week as an introduction, and I'll continue to say it, because if you're just starting today, you know, here or in the last couple of weeks, you can get the tapes and get caught up in Romans if you like. The book of Romans is an incredible book. Probably for you and for me, understanding the number one thing in the Bible that we need to understand, which is Bible doctrine. The word doctrine means to teach. And when you come to the book of Romans, the book of Romans is uniquely placed in the New Testament because it begins to lay out for you and show you exactly not only the birth of the church, but what the church really is to believe and what it's to stand on. I don't, I don't like the word stupid. I've never called anybody stupid that I wasn't sorry that I did and apologized very quickly. I think that's a very bad word, and I, I, I would never uh, call anybody that uh, directly in any way, any shape, or form. Uh, but I have never, I'm going to use it this morning, I have never seen more stupidity in Bible Christianity today than I have. People who are trying to, uh, to do what God they think God wants them to do, but in reality do not understand even what they're supposed to believe. And it comes down today because pastors don't teach the book of Romans. They don't lay things out for you. And uh, so you try to do the best you can and you get, wonder why you get caught up in everything or your life is not fulfilled. And, uh, and, and, and when you struggle with the things that you struggle with. And, you know, it's a, it's very, it's, the answer is very easy. God's people today are saved and they're on their way to heaven, but they absolutely know nothing about the Bible. And I want you to know everything about the Bible. And last week we began in Romans chapter 9 as we started moving down through it. We defined two key words for you that really help you figure out what you're reading. The book of Romans, and I told you this when we started, it's like the Declaration of Independence. It's like our own Constitution. Our Constitution, and our, our, our Declaration of Independence. It lays out what we stand for as a nation, or what we used to, and, and what we believe as a nation. That's what the book of Romans does for you and me as Christians. It lays out every aspect of every detail of not only what we're supposed to believe, but why we're supposed to believe it. And we're in Romans chapter 9. And Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 deal now with the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel, as far as God's dealing with them, all the aspects of them historically we find in chapter 9, and then we find out how that God had a great plan for them. They reneged on that plan. They didn't fulfill it. And then it goes from chapter 9 to chapter 10 where the times of the Gentiles and God dealing with the church and then back to chapter 11 which deals with the second coming of Christ and God restoring the nation of Israel. But we saw a great word defined last week and it's the word elect or the word election. And you remember I told you that that word means set apart. It means called out. It means chosen. I also told you that never anywhere in the New Testament will you ever find the word elect or the word election that is ever dealing with an individual. It will always be dealing with a nation of Israel. And I gave you the reference verses last week back in Isaiah that actually showed you and defined for you uh, the word election as it pertains to the nation of Israel. You remember that when we come through our, our Bible basic class, many of you, and, this, and I told you this is how you build on it. 
I make reference to things like this, you ought to already be putting them in your little mind, in your little chart. We talked about how important Israel was. We talked about how that they were the main component in the Old Testament by which God uh, dealt with man. And I showed you now, and you should have it down, how that God formulated them, how God uh, uh, and called them out from, from Exodus up through Joshua. And then when Abraham comes on the scene and, and God begins to develop them in Genesis and he brings them right up through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and uh, they get called out under Moses and then they go into the land and they get established under David. We saw all that and we understand now that last week we talked about a key verse which said, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And I told you how that many, many people who, who mistreat the Bible and teach the Bible wrongly they make that individuals. And from that, they build the heresy, which we call Calvinism, uh, which basically means that God chose some people to go to heaven and chose people, some people to go to hell. And many times they'll use uh, that verse right there. In fact, truth of the matter is, uh, Romans chapter 9 is probably the second greatest hangout place for Calvinists. The first one would be uh, Rome, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and the third one would be Romans chapter uh, 8. And uh, I told you how, now that we understand this, that he's not talking about individuals when he says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. I gave you the reference back in Genesis that said he's talking about two nations. Then I showed you how Jacob develops into the nation of Israel and how Esau develops into the Edomites and how the book of Obadiah is written as they go against the nation of Israel. So you should have all of that by now. Romans chapter 9, very clearly and plainly, is establishing the special nature that God has with the nation of Israel, and then how they lose the blessings because of the fact that they don't keep doing what the Word of God tells them to do. Obviously, throughout this, I've made the great parallels from Israel as a nation to you and I as individuals, how that just as God had a plan for the nation of Israel, and we're going to talk about this today, God has a plan for you. And just as they lost the blessings of God because they, uh, they didn't do what's right, sometimes many of us as God's people do the exact same thing. Now today, as I stated last week, we're going to look at probably the single greatest concept about God that you're ever going to understand. The, probably in all that we talk about God and all of the things, I don't know of any one thing, that any one concept that puts in context God and what He's doing. We talk about His history, and we look back through history, and we learn things about history. And yet, history has to have a context. Thursday night, I talked about, somebody asked a question. We talked, about, we talked about knowledge, we talked about wisdom, and we talked about understanding. And I showed you Thursday night how that knowledge is facts. And when you, when you get facts, you have knowledge. When you apply those facts, or you use those facts, you have wisdom. Any unsaved man, any unsaved woman uh, in this town today or around the country or around the world, they can have facts and they can have wisdom. I met many, many unsaved people who have wisdom in certain things that they do. I've met guys who are great mechanics. They have a special knowledge about engines. I know guys that are, that are great fishermen, great hunters. And what they've done is they've learned the basics of hunting, fishing, mechanics, Whatever they do, some of you amaze me uh, with your ability to, with a computer to do the things that you do. Personally, I'm still under the opinion that all computers are demon-possessed. And, I mean, they have a mind of their own. But some of you seem to 
get along with those demons pretty well, and you work it out really well with them. And I, and I envy that. I envy that. And yet, you know, that's, you, you've done that because you have taken the facts, and then you have developed it into wisdom. And any unsaved man or unsaved woman can have facts and can have wisdom. But I told you Thursday night what an unsaved person can never have is understanding. Because understanding is how God is involved in it. Understanding is how it, whatever you're looking at plays out in the old scheme of the Bible and what God is doing. And when you look at history, you can develop facts and you can develop, you can develop wisdom about history. But if you want to understand history, then you've got to understand the concept that I'm talking about today. When you look at prophecy, prophecy is things that are going to happen in the future. And you can, you can have an understanding of facts, and you can look at the world around us. You can look at the nation of Israel and the scenarios that they're in. Iran and Iraq and North Korea and all of the things that, that there is going on in the world right now. And you can get the facts and you can, you can apply wisdom. But until you see it from God's standpoint, understanding, you'll never really fully understand it. You know that's true of your own life too? I mean, you can, you can study the Bible. You can study the Bible and you can learn the Bible and you can come to the point where you can take every class that we have and you can know everything about the Bible there is. You can have knowledge and you can have, make that knowledge uh, into wisdom, but until you take the Bible and apply it to you personally, you're never going to have understanding. And I want to show you today one of the absolute, without a doubt, one of the absolute greatest concepts that you'll ever learn, and maybe I should say that we'll never learn about God, but boy, we sure should. And uh, it's an incredible concept. Now, I want to read in Romans chapter 9, and I want to pick it up where we're at. We're in verse 15, by the way. And uh, let's read this, and then we'll come back, and we'll try to put this thing uh, all together. Now, here's what he says. This is God speaking, or, or Paul writing about what God spoke. For he, God, saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion in whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Wilt thou say unto me, Why dost ye yet find fault? For who uh, hath resisted his will? But nay, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay, the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he hath afore prepared unto glory. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we love you today. And, Lord, we be very careful uh, as we come to this sacred text uh, that we uh, look to you, your spirit, to teach us today. Lord, we know that as human beings, even saved human beings, that we can't get anything unless God opens up our understanding. And there's a lot of good people here today, Lord, who have come to get something from your word. And I pray, first of all, Lord, that we'll look inside our hearts today, and if there's anything that has not been confessed, anything that has not been dealt with, anything in our lives that would keep us from receiving uh, what the Holy Spirit of God has for us, that even now we'd confess it, we'd get it right, 
that we might stand spotless before you as far as our walk with God is concerned, and that we might receive the things of the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, these are good people, and they're your people. My job here is just a temporary shepherd uh, of these people that belong to you. And Lord, help me today. Help me through my own inadequacies, Lord. Help me through my own struggles, Lord, to give them what you have for them today. And Lord, we love you. We thank you and praise you. And Lord, I pray that we'll go home today with this great truth that we need to see today. If we don't get anything else out of what I say today, may we leave today understanding the greatest single concept about you uh, that is all through uh, the Bible and history. And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now he says in verse 15, he says, For he saith unto Moses. Now, I just want to make reference to this because we have been talking about how Calvinists or people will take this and try to put it into you and me to the church. And of course, what he's saying here is, he says, For he saith unto Moses. Now that sets the context. Moses wasn't part of the church. Moses wasn't in the kingdom of God. Moses is an Old Testament patriarch that is the, uh, the beginning of the nation of Israel, and his kingdom is the literal, visible kingdom of heaven. What he's speaking here, he isn't speaking to the church. He isn't speaking to Christians. He's speaking to Moses, who was under the Old Testament law, not New Testament Christians, not the church, and certainly not John Calvin. Now look at verse 15, and here, here's the tough one. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion in whom I will have compassion. Now, people will take from that, who don't understand God and understand the whole parameter of God, that verse standing by itself looks like God's kind of got an arrogant attitude and simply saying, you know what, I'll save those that I want to save, and the ones that I don't want to save, I won't save. Now, that's the premise that a Calvin comes from, Calvinist comes from. He comes to the point where he says, now there's a verse that clearly says that uh, God will have mercy on whom he has mercy, and God will have uh, not mercy on those that he doesn't want to have mercy. You see, and he takes that one little verse. He knows, doesn't understand any other concept about God in the Old Testament. He certainly doesn't understand the context of he's talking to Moses here, and then he tries to build his teaching on top of that, and of course, that won't work. You know what he's saying here, folks? I mean, it's simple that, that anybody could figure it out. What he's saying here, that God shows men mercy based on the conditions that God has set up for man to get that mercy. Now, when he's talking here, uh, and he says here that uh, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, uh, the con context of that statement is found in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. And you always got to have a verse that defines what the passage is saying. I told you this last week, and you want to turn to this because you want to see it. The Bible is of no private interpretation. The Bible interprets itself. When you read a passage like this, and you say to yourself, wow, that looks pretty, uh, uh, pretty conclusive, well, you better get a verse that explains that verse that will put it into context. And, of course, we know he's speaking to Moses. And in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, God is speaking to Moses again. And notice what he says in verse, uh, in verse uh, 19. I'm sorry, you went to 33, 19, Exodus chapter 20. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 and 6 is where I want you to go. Uh, verse 15 is the Old Testament context of, of uh, that's what he's quoting there, uh, Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. I want you to go to Exodus chapter 20. Now, here's the context. Now, look what God says. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. 
Thou shalt not, God speaking, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, other gods, nor serve them, other gods. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Now watch it. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now look at verse 6. And showing mercy. There it is. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandment. Now, did you see the condition set up there of getting God's mercy? Somebody raise your hand and tell me what it is. What's the condition to getting God's mercy? Keeping the commandments. God always sets, you want mercy? God sets the conditions for that mercy. And when you meet those conditions, then God gives you that mercy. You don't meet those conditions, God won't give you that mercy. God chooses to give you or not give you His mercy based on the conditions that He sets. In the Old Testament, it was keeping His commandments. That's why all this is to Moses. In the New Testament, it's you and me accepting Christ as your own personal Savior. Now, you'll meet people all the time, and bless their hearts, I feel sorry for them. And sometimes you can get through to them, and sometimes you can't. I had a lady tell me a while back, she said, when we were trying to talk about salvation, and uh, Jamie was witnessing to a, a, a gal here a while back, too, and uh, talking about salvation. And here's the reasoning. The woman looks at Jamie and says, and I've heard this all my life, she says, you know what? I, what you're trying to tell me is that if, if I want to get saved, whatever saved is, then I've got to come through Jesus Christ. She said, you know what? She says, do you know how many roads that you can take and get to Florida? You can take different roads, maybe five or six different roads, and you can still get to Florida. Making the analogy that just like there's many roads that will get you to Florida, there's many roads that will get you to Christ. Now that's a, it's, first of all, it's kind of lunacy to, to compare going to heaven with going to Florida. That's not the comparison you want to make. There may be many roads to get you to a Florida. I'm not going to dispute that. But Jesus himself said there's only one way you can get to heaven. And the Bible says it's got to be through Christ. Now, you know what that is? That's a condition. That's a condition. In the Old Testament, the condition was you want my mercy, then keep my commandments. In the New Testament... The condition is, you want my mercy? Then you got to get it in my son, Jesus Christ. And when it comes to God, you know, we always like to throw around the little saying, and it sounds neat, you know, and it sounds manly, and it sounds like you're really in charge. And, you know, I've heard people use it all the time. I've even used it myself. But it's really never true in any other sense that I've ever seen other than God. And that is the little phrase, my way or the highway. If you want the definitive person that can stand there and say, my way or the highway, it's God. Because God always will set conditions for His mercy. And if you meet that condition, then you get His mercy. If you don't meet that condition, then you don't get His mercy. And I'll say it one more time. In the Old Testament, you just saw it right there in Exodus chapter 20. God's condition was keeping the law. Showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. That was a condition. In the New Testament, it isn't about the commandments. We're in the church. Christ died on the cross. He hadn't died on the cross back there. The conditions for you and me is His Son dying on the cross. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know for sure if you died right now that you're, if you go to heaven, if you're sitting here this morning, and deep down as I'm speaking, the Holy Spirit of God is doing that little grinding act, 
And deep down inside, you're not 100% sure if you died right now, you'd go to heaven. I got, I want to tell you something. The only way you're going to fill that void, the only way you're going to have that assurance, the only way you're going to know for sure is one way. And it's not by joining this church or any other church or being baptized upside down, forwards, backwards, seven times under, or one time under. The only way you're going to fill that void is to meet Christ in the middle and get His death on a cross applied to your sins and get Him washed away, and that's the only way you're going to do it. Short version, His way or the highway. That's simple. It's just that simple. That's what He's saying here. That's what He's saying. Now, you know... If you're here this morning and if I get kind of loud and and that kind of scares you, I'm not mad at anything. I had a lady, I had a lady and a guy, and this is years ago. Lady says, well, I really like church, but she says, I didn't, I don't, didn't care much for your preaching. Well, that kind of hurt, but you know what? I, and she says, you, you, you yell a lot. And she says, and people think you're mad. And I, and I, and I, and then about two weeks later, we went to a, a everybody in the church went to a, a baseball game or a football game, I can't remember what it was. And this, this couple went. And she's over there jumping up and down and screaming and yelling like she, like she's bumped bananas when somebody made a touchdown. You know what? Just put it in context. You get excited and scream and yell about what you want. I get yelled and scream and yell about what I get excited about. You see? Now, if I'm sitting there watching an old football game, two guys throwing a dead pig down the thing, I don't do much for me. Now, now I, I think you could add a lot to football when the guys are running with the ball, everybody in the grandstand. Or maybe you take a lottery and maybe two guys, one on each end goal and one on each side, get to shoot at them as they run down. I think that'd be exciting. See? I mean, if you get down to the touchdown, you don't get a shot, touchdown. Now, that I could get into that, see. But just watching a bunch of guys throw some half a dead pig down the thing there and somebody had to catch it and, and going in there, you know, and then does some kind of goofy dance like he just did something. Now, I would expect, I would respect your dance. If you got the ball running down there and four guys out there are, and you make it down, now you got something to dance about. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm just excited. I got a confession to make to you. I got saved about 40 years ago, and I just ain't ever got over it. I just ain't ever got over it. I know some Christians do, you know, and they look like they've been baptized in dill pickle juice, you know. You ask them, where do you go to church? Well, I go to the first church of the refrigerator, you know. I, I understand that. I'm sorry. When I got saved, it took. And I'm just excited. I'm more excited now than I was back then, because I didn't know it. I was excited back then. I just didn't know why. Now I'm even worse because I'm excited, but I know why. So when he says, I have mercy on those that have mercy, he's talking about God always sets conditions. Always sets conditions. And again, this has absolutely nothing to do with the church. It's talking about the nation of Israel. Once you get the context of chapter 9, I don't know how you could put it. Look at verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Now there's three incredible things here that, that I want you to see and, and getting to the place that, uh, and the great concept that I want you to see today. And the first one I think is probably one of the greatest things in the Bible. 
And uh, most people miss it. Most people don't see it. But I'm going to give it to you. Look there it says, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh. Now I know that Paul writes this. And he, he writes it the way God told him to write it. And the Bible says, The scripture saith unto Pharaoh. And most people just read that and move on. But you know, the truth of the matter is, that's, that's, uh, that's Exodus chapter, uh, before Exodus chapter 12. You know that in Exodus chapter 12, there was no scriptures? You know, Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, but he does it way later than that. When it says there, the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, ladies and gentlemen, there were no scriptures. You know what I like about that verse? That verse proves what I preach to you every day and you see me live every day and what I believe today since the day I got saved. And that is that the scriptures and God are the same. Paul's what we call a bibliographer. He worshiped the Bible. And he's telling you right there that, that God and the scriptures, he uses them interchangeably. And that's one of the greatest places in the Bible that tells you that God and the Bible are the same. And the Bible says God is unchanging. So your Bible's got to be unchanging. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God in the Word. What? Was God. See? Now, I believe that. I believe that. Now, I'll just throw in this one to you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8 is another one. And that one says, the Scripture foreseeing. Look, a heathen should be justified by faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham. See, there's another one. That's Galatians 3.8. Now, I'll tell you what. In Abraham's time, the, the scriptures were 1,500 years away. There were no scriptures. There were no scriptures in Abraham's time. There was none. And yet the Bible says the scripture foreseeing. You know what that tells me? Can a book foresee? I mean, you go home and you got, you know, uh, gone with the wind. Great book. You got, you know, you know uh, any book you think of. Great book. You say, that was really a good book. Yeah, but can that book foresee you anything? You see, this book is different than any other book the world has ever seen because it's alive. Years ago, long time ago, I used to be part of a bunch of guys that used to go preach on the street. We don't preach on the street here because it's, you can't do it today and get anything done. Uh, but back then, you still could because you were still back there, you know. And what we do, we go downtown Canton. In fact, when I was home last time, I drove downtown and, and looked at the exact spot where we was. And we'd always try to, we'd go down there on a, on a Friday or sometime during the week, you know, around lunchtime when everybody moving out from lunch. And we, we always had a unique idea. We had this guy that was an incredible guy. He's a great preacher. And he always had a knack. He always had a knack for figuring things out and always was way ahead of the game. Oh, I know you figured it out. I'm talking about myself. No, I'm not. Anyway, <laughs> we go out there one time, and, and I, I got there a little late, and there was a big Mexican sombrero, big, big, uh, what are they called? So, sombrero. sombrero, that's right, yeah. I had Italian food last night, and it messed me up with my Mexican dialect. But anyway, he had, he had a big Mexican sombrero down there. And, 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 and we're all standing back, and I got there late, and the guy says, and the people are walking by and looking at the hat, and he says, ma'am, look out, that's alive, that's alive. Get away from it. That's alive. And somebody else is walking by and says, Sir, stand back. That's alive. Don't get close to that. That's alive. And people started thought they had a big python or a snake or something under there, you know. And they're standing around and, and people, he's getting a good crowd. And he's saying, Stand back, sir. That's alive. Don't get close. It's alive. And somebody else, he said, Stay back, ma'am. It's alive. Pretty soon a police officer saw the crowd. 
walked up and he said, what's going on here? And the, and the guy said, sure, please stand back. That's a lie. And the police said, what's a lie? That's what he was waiting for. He walked over and picked up the hat. There was a Bible underneath. And he said, the word of God. <laughs> now that I've got your detention. And then he preached to him, see? Now, I like that. You know what he was saying? This book's alive. It discerns, the Bible says, the thoughts and intents of your heart. And the Bible says there in Galatians chapter 3, when he lays that thing out, he says, the scripture foreseen. Well, there were no scriptures. Who foresaw? God did. Because God in that book are the same, see? God in that book are the same. Now, the second thing I want you to see here in this passage is this. And this is where the, the first one was just, you need to know it, but this is what we're getting into. He says, I have raised thee up that I might show my power in thee. Talking to Pharaoh. And then the third thing is that, and that, by, that, by my, name, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. And here is where we're at today. And this is the single greatest concept that I'm going to tell you now. And then we're going to see how it works through the Bible, through history, and through your life. The greatest single thing that you'll ever learn about God that will put everything into context. What you struggle with. When you look at history. When you look at the future. And your own personal life. And the situations you go through. The greatest single thing you'll ever understand about God is simply this. God allows everything. God permits everything. God has a plan that he put in action way back in Genesis 1-1. That plan is going to run to Genesis chapter, or Revelation chapter 22. That chart over there represents that. God is allowing everything to happen. God lets everything take place for one reason. And that is that God who created it all, God who is worthy of it all, is going to get honor and glory out of everything that goes on on planet earth. Now sometimes it doesn't look that way. i got to be honest with you. Sometimes you wonder who's in charge. But that's because we're right in the proximity of it, see? I guarantee you, you step back and look at what God is doing and understand God's plan and realize what God is trying to accomplish, when He started it, when He's going to end it, and why it's going through the different twists and turns that it is. The greatest thing you ever realize about God is that God who created it all is going to get honor and glory out of everything that He created when he put that plan into motion. Do we as God's people, do we really understand God's plan? Now when I was growing up, and I told you back in my day, I, I was taught by the old boys. The old last of the Philadelphian church age. The old guys that really believed the Bible. Who still stood on the Bible. And I'm telling you, from that 40 years back to now, it's unbelievable how things have changed. It's unbelievable how God's people have changed, how preachers have changed, how churches have changed. When I was growing up, somebody asked me this question the other day. When I was, they asked, I know what it was, I think it was you. Uh, they asked me a question that, that when I was growing up, you know, did we see the Philadelphian church uh, age uh, and the Laodicean church uh, for what it really was? And I told that person, I said, you know what? When we were growing up and I was learning my Bible, we all thought that the Laodicean church, and you know that's the last church before Jesus comes back. That's the apostate church. That's the church. Laodicea means rights of the people. It's the church. It's the last church in Revelation chapter 3 out of the 7 before the Lord comes back. And we thought, honestly, we thought that the Laodicean church was the Protestant churches that had come out of the Reformation 
that had went back to uh, their apostasy and, and were really, and, th- and that was a Laodicean church. If anybody would have told me at that point, this is 1971, 72, if anybody would have told me at that time that the Laodicean church was Baptist churches, churches at that time that were preaching the Bible, churches at that time that had the truth, that were winning people to Christ, if anybody would have told me that the the Laodicean church, the apostate church, was going to be the very church that had the truth, I wouldn't have believed it. But brother, 40 years past that time, with what's taken place, I believe it today. I've never seen a time where churches have preached less Bible and tried to raise more money. I've never seen a time where God's people are more confused I've seen God's people that have been saved 5, 10, 15 years and know nothing about the Bible. Some of the elementary kids know more Bible than they do. Why is that? It's not necessarily the people's fault. I'll tell you whose fault it is. It's the pastors of the churches in this country that gave up preaching the Word of God. We're on a, we're on a crusade in America right now to fix America. We're on a crusade in America right now to clean up America. We've got cities that people are killed. Why, you can't even drive downtown without getting shot by a bullet that wasn't even coming your way. It's terrible. And our answer to that is, you see, our answer to the degrading society and the abortions by the millions and all of the ungodliness that goes on and the drug abuse and the alcoholism and all of those things. We go down to the mission. When I started going down to the mission 30 years ago, The average age of the mission bum was about 60 years of age. You know what the average age is now? About 20. About 20. You know why that is? I'll tell you why that is. Because society is eroded. And churches want to fix it. You know how they want to fix it? They want to fix it with more programs. They want to throw more money at it. Well, every time somebody gets shot, well, let's spend more money to teach people about gun safety. Or teach people to educate. Or find them a better job. You know what? That's not what's going to fix this society. What will fix this society, it ain't going to happen by the way, but what will fix this society is every preacher getting up in his pulpit on Sunday morning, getting back to a Bible that is the truth, opening up that Bible and preaching the hell out of people and get them right with God and then staying right with God. That will change this society. Most of you don't remember this. called Prohibition. Prohibition was brought about that you couldn't buy alcohol in America anymore. You could buy beer, but you couldn't get whiskey. And prohibition was brought in because the, the alcoholism and the temperance wanted to get rid of it. And so they, 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 they brought what they called the uh, prohibition in that prohibited you buying alcohol, hard stuff, whiskey, bourbon. You know how prohibition came into this country? It came about not on the tails of legislators. It came on the tails of one man who stood up across this country, Billy Sunday, who preached the Bible everywhere he went, and where he went, cities got saved, places closed, bars closed, and it prevented the whole town because of the power of the Word of God and a man that will preach it. That's how you fix it. Now, I don't know why I told you all that and wasted all that energy, because it ain't going to get fixed. But that's what's wrong with it. And that's how you'll get it fixed. That's how you'll get it fixed. And I tell you what, God's people today, they have no understanding of God's plan. One of my, one of my kids gave me a tape to listen to of a Bible study they went to a couple of weeks ago. Somebody asked a question, probably a very nice person. 
Somebody asked the question of what, what's going to be going on in eternity and how the whole thing works out and lays out. This is one of the goofiest things I've ever heard in my life as the pastor answered it back. Talked about the fact, well, I believe that we're all going to be living stones and we're all going to turn into some kind of stones that are going to be alive and we're going to be part of that. That's what I believe. I thought to myself, it's no wonder God's people don't have a clue of what's going on today. I like to ask that bird, hey, tell me about Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. You want to know what eternity is all about? Hey, when I grew up, what was going on out in eternity and what was going to happen was basic Bible knowledge. What happened to it? What happened to it? Where would we go from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, which is a definitive verse, to we're going to be a bunch of rocks? The rocks was in his head. I'd like to ask him why you find the tree of life in Genesis chapter 3 and then you find the tree of life in Revelation chapter 22. Why is that? He didn't know why it is. We got a lot, bunch of wannabe preachers out there and a bunch of wannabe Bible teachers that know nothing about the Bible. Give me the verse in Ezekiel chapter 36 that pulls eternity past and eternity future and puts it right into a context for you. I learned that the first year I was saved. But I'm asking you, do we really comprehend what all this is all about? Even more important, do we really comprehend how we fit into it? That's the key. That's the key. God's plan, how it affects your life, or better yet, how your life affects God's plan. God has a plan for your life. And you know what the overall theme of that plan is? Oh, he has something he wants you to do, Zach. William, he has something he wants you to do. He has something he wants you to do. Individually, he has something to everybody he wants you to do. But you know overall what he wants to get, what he wants to do in your life? One thing, overall. He may call you to be different things and do different things, but overall, he has one thing that he wants to accomplish. He wants the honor and glory out of your life and what you do. That's what he wanted from Israel. What he wanted from Pharaoh. That's what he wants from everything. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. This thing is, a, it's, it, this thing is incredible. I'm going to show you a great verse in Colossians chapter 1. Look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 14. Here's a great verse. That goes along exactly what he's saying to Pharaoh. And exactly how we're applying it to your life and my life. He says in Colossians chapter 1 verses 14 through 17, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Watch it. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him, here it comes, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether to be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Here it comes. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things consist. See, when you begin to understand the context of the Bible, when you begin to understand that the Bible's theme of the Bible is a kingdom, and with that kingdom is a throne, and with that throne is a crown, once you begin to understand what we're looking at in Bible basics, how that all through the Bible two men are after that crown, one rightly deserves it, the other one doesn't, once you realize that in the Old Testament God tries to establish that literal visible kingdom through the nation of Israel, and then he tries to establish the kingdom of heaven, the spiritual kingdom through the church, once you realize how that thing plays itself out and works its way out, you realize that when Christ comes back, 
The Bible says that he's going to be crowned King of kings and the Lord of lords in Revelation chapter 19. That's the end of it all. That's the end result. That's where everything in your Bible from Genesis points to. No matter what struggle, no matter what you go through in life, no matter what failures we have, no matter what defeats we face, the end result is no matter what happens with Israel or America or whatever takes place, the end result is going to be when he sits down on that throne and he's crowned King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because everything was made by him and for him. You better grab that truth. It'll help you deal with what you're struggling with right now. Revelation chapter 4 verse 9 says that the beasts, the cherubims, that are around the throne, they give honor and glory to God day and night. Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and they were created. Revelation 19.1 says, The voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Did you ever notice this? You never, this is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life, and it's so true. Did you ever notice that everything God created, everything God created gives Him honor and glory except one thing. I mean, He made the weather. I can remember a couple of places in the Bible where the disciples were on the sea, and the, and the winds were boisterous, and, the, and it was, looked like they were going to sink, and Jesus was in the boat. And one time He's in the boat, and He just says, See, be calm, and other times he comes walking on the water and he says winds be still and I mean it's dead quiet the weather obeys him the weather obeys him the sun and the moon obey him if you know the book of Ecclesiastes you know that they follow a prescribed a circuit that they all follow and it lays it out in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 2 and 3 the earth the earth obeys what he says 365 days around the sun makes a year. And that earth never wavers from that, and it follows that exact course. Never wavers more than a millimeter, any which way. And yet one day God said back there in Joshua, well, boys, they're not quite done fighting yet, are you? It's getting dark. And they said, yeah, we could use a couple more hours daylight. He said, no problem. Hey, sun, zip it. And the earth stopped rotating. You believe that? Well, Professor Totten did, who was a math professor at Oxford in 1710, because he took the mathematical equations and worked them back. You know what he found out? He found out that there's 24 hours missing in our time. Because God said, and it says over there in Joshua, that the, that the earth stopped and quit rotating, or the sun quit rotating, the earth stopped about a whole day. And then you got over there in Kings, where Hezekiah says, well, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm really, I'm, really, uh, uh, I'm, really, I'm really worried about this, you know, and all of this stuff. And he says, uh, he says, God says, well, I'll give you some more time to live. And he says, yeah, but how do I know that's for true? He's just like a lot of us, you know. He couldn't take God at his word. He needed a sign. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. He says, I'll, I'll make the, the, sun, the sundown go 10 degrees ahead. And he said, well, that ain't no big deal. Anybody that's going to do that on his own, how about if you make it go back? And at that point, the earth don't really stop rotating. See, and Joshua just stopped rotating. But there, it not only stopped rotating, it went backwards. And there's the other part of your 24 missing hours between those two places, you see? You won't beat the Bible. You won't beat it at all. You won't beat it at all. 
the stars. The stars follow God's courses. You know what the Bible says? It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. When God made the heavens, he made them to declare God's glory. You know how God reaches nations where they have no Bible? You know how God reaches nations where they have no missionary? If God doesn't have his son, there's three things in the Bible that give honor and glory that you can find God through. One of them is son. The other one's the word of God. The other one's the stars. Now, I don't know if you've ever looked at the consolation. They tell the gospel story. Oh, I know what astrology tells you. I'm telling you what right now. Every one of those 12 tribes had a constellation assigned to them. And the 12 tribes back then make up what astrologers try to make the 12 signs of the zodiac today when they get outside the Bible. I'm going to tell you something. God made it all. God made it all. One day God went out and he looked at everything before he created it. And he said, I'm a perfect God. And I'm an orderly God. And I'm going to make everything, but i got to have a pattern. Now, what am I going to use for a pattern? And one of the angels said, well, God, uh, if it's going to be a perfect creation, yes, it has to be perfect. Is it going to be a complete creation? Absolutely, it has to be complete. Then he says, then, well, why don't you use yourself as a pattern? God said, I never thought of that. I'll use myself. So your whole, whole, whole physical universe, everything about your spiritual life follows the pattern of consistency in the Bible and order in the Bible after the most perfect orderly God in the world, and that is by the system of threes. You know what a three is in your Bible in numerology? It's completeness. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity. You know it. Remember the Trinity? Remember that little song you used to sing? Three in one, all in three, the one in the middle died for me. Remember that? He's a Trinity. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. First John chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. So when God says, I'm going to make man, you know what he did? He made man a body, soul, and a spirit. See that thing? You want to find you want to find it, you want to find it complete, whatever, then you're going to find it's based on a system of three, based on God. Because God is the model for everything that He made, because God's going to get honor and glory. That's why the Bible says He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that great verse that you all know so well. It says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation, here it comes, of the world, are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. See how that thing works? I mean, God created everything after his own pattern, which is a perfect, complete pattern, and it's the model of three. You know what God is? God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. God is omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. And God is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. You see, without three, you have nothing. If I took a magic marker and I put a line across that wall, you've got three parts to that line. You've got a length, you've got a width, and if you've got a microscope, you've got a depth to it or a breadth to it. There's three. If you take any one of those three away, you don't have a line. You don't have a line. God created everything. In the physical world, we have three dimensions. Height, length, and width. That's, that's what that line would be. Height, length, and width. But then the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 3 that there's a fourth dimension. That fourth dimension is the depth or the spiritual aspect of it of God's mind. 
So you got three dimensions physically, the fourth dimension of God, and then I guess you got the fifth dimension. Stop in the name of love. Remember them? That was the fifth dimension. They're not in the Bible, but I really like their music. You got, you got three physical dimensions, height, length, and width. And then there's a depth. There's a spiritual dimension. That's God. Look at time. You know what you got in time? Past, present, and future. Three. Three. I tell people all the time, you know, I said, you know what? It's important that you take any one of those away, past, present, or future. You take any one of them away, you don't know what you're doing. I mean, let's face it. If you don't know where you've been, I'm talking to you Christian, church history. If you don't know where you've been, how do you know where you're going? And if you don't know where you've been and you don't know where you're going, how in the world do you know where you're at? The answer is you don't. Because three is the complete. Three makes it complete. You want to get scientific? You want to study matter? It's source, generation, and position. You want to go see your shrink and talk about reality? Reality is time, matter, and space. You want to look at man like we already said? Body, soul, and spirit. You want to see a complete family? It's mother, father, and child. It's never just a mom and a dad. We're a family because you're incomplete. You're complete when the third person shows up and now you're a family. When you come to the earth, you got three things. And a land, air, and a sea. When it comes to the kingdoms, animal, vegetable, and mineral. When it comes to music, harmony, rhythm, and melody. I mean, let's face it. You got the Army and the Navy and the Air Corps. I mean, it's three. You take your Bible. You hear me say it all the time. Your Bible has three applications. It's got a doctrinal application, inspirational application, and a historical application. You got an Old Testament and a New Testament. Then your Bible's incomplete. If all you got is an Old Testament and a New Testament, then your Bible's incomplete. There needs to be a third testament to make it complete. We already saw what that was in Romans 9, 17 and Galatians 3. It's the person of Christ. He's the third testament. And he makes it complete. The Bible was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. The Old Testament is buried around the law, the prophets, and the writers. Uh, writings. The New Testament is the gospel, the acts, and the epistles. I mean, wherever you go, wherever you go, nothing is complete without the third part. Two and two is incomplete till you get the answer four. And it's just that simple. God made everything after the pattern of himself. Everything. When it talks about the Ark of the Covenant, back there in the Old Testament, he put three things in that ark. He put a copy of the law, he put Aaron's rod that budded, and he put a pot of manna. And every one of those are significant to show you the completeness of what God did. You want to talk about the complete Christ? Some people say it's Jesus. Somebody says he's the Christ. Somebody said he's Lord. The complete name is three. The Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of those names means something that when you understand what it means, brings about the completeness of who he is. Three is the model. Three is the number. Three is the number. And he made everything he made after himself. Why? Because he's going to get honor and glory out of everything that he does. So the weather obeys him. The sun and the moon obeys him. The earth obeys him. The stars obey him. Even the animals obey him. Even the animals obey him. I mean, when's the last time you saw, you saw a, a, a mama animal abuse her baby animal? When's the last time you saw an animal break outside of the realm? Did you, ever see, uh, did you ever see two male monkeys try to get along in a relationship? 
You ever see two male horses say, or two female horses say, hey, we're going to hang out together, and uh, you know what, this is my new horseman guy? That's what, that's what, you're laughing at me, but doesn't the Bible say, doth not even nature tell you? Well, if we're all through evolution, and we got to the point now where it's all right for two men to be married or two women to be married, then if we're all come from animals, why aren't the animals doing it? Does not even nature itself tell you? Well, my two labs know more than most people do today. I got a little yellow one named Daisy. She's a female. And when Daisy comes up there, she gets on the couch. Daisy will lick your face. She'll kiss you on the mouth. She will lick you six ways from Sunday. She'll kiss you and lick you and lick you and kiss you. And as long as you stand there and kiss her back, she will stay there for 24 hours if that's what you want. Now, I got another one. His name is Buddy. He's a guy. Your pet Buddy, Buddy will lay down next to you. You try to kiss Buddy on the mouth and get him to do what Daisy does. Buddy will not kiss you on the mouth. You know why? He knows dog, boy, dog, don't do that. Laugh at me all you want. Doth not even nature itself teach you. Come on. The animals obey. Why, you don't want to get right down to it? Even the devil obeys. And the unclean spirits obey. Why, in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, the devil goes into God and he says, you know what, I'm going to work Job over. God says, you are, huh? He says, yes, I am. And he said, you know what? He don't really love you. And the God says, oh, yes, he does. Nah, he don't. He just loves you because all the stuff you give him. And God says, well, take everything he's got. And let's see. Devil says, that's all I needed. He starts walking out the door saying, am I going to give it to him? And right when he gets to the door, to the elevator to come down. Oh, yeah. You missed that in John 10? This is against that thing to the door. You missed that in John 10? Okay. If you did, that's not my fault. But just as he gets to the door to come down. You missed that? John 10? Anyway, is he ready to come down? The devil said, God said, oh, by the way, don't touch his body. Devil went, you know why? Because at that point, God told the devil what his parameters were. You see, God has a, you don't know that. We're going to talk about this in a minute. We look at the things that we think the devil and this and all that. God uses the devil just like he uses everything else. You realize that God's going to get the honor and glory even out of the devil? I'm going to show you that in a moment. With the devil, God said to the devil, you can do whatever you want, take what you want, but don't touch him. And the devil, if he'd have stayed up all night lying and got all the legions of hell with him, he couldn't have touched Job's body. Second time he comes back, God says, okay, now you can touch his body. Devil says, all right. Goes to that door, John 10. And just as he's ready to step on the elevator, God says, but you can't kill him. Even he has to go by what God did. Everything obeys God. Why, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, he cast some devils out of some guys, probably Baptist preachers. He cast some demons out. And the demon said, demon gives God more respect than most of God's people do. They says, who art thou, Jesus, who art the son of David to torment us before our time? <laughs> they not only knew who he was from Israel's standpoint, they knew where they were going to wind up in a lake of fire. 
No. No. I'll tell you why. Well, I'll tell you the proof that we don't understand God's plan. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you what it is. It's real easy. Everything that God created, and He made it after a pattern of Himself. The weather, the sun, the moon, the earth, the stars, the animals, the unclean spirits, and the devil. They all have their parameters, and they all obey Him. It's the only thing of His creation that will arrogantly not obey Him is us. It's us. It's us. That's what he says in Romans 9, verse 20. Oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? That's what we do. And you know why God, I can understand why the world does it, because they are lost and on their way to hell and have no, no understanding at all. But you and I, we're not only to have to have knowledge and wisdom, we are supposed to have understanding. We are supposed to see God in things. Yet I see things happen in God's people's lives and they say, now why did that happen? Or they get mad at God. Blame God. And the whole bottom line is they don't understand. There was a blind guy once in the gospel. Remember him? Around John chapter 6 or someplace in there. And they came up and they asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it the sin of his parents? Was it some sin in his life? And Jesus said, neither one. He was born by that the glory of God might be brought forth and manifested. You know, sometimes God will allow things to happen in your life that are bad things because God wants to get the honor and glory out of it. And because we are so shallow in our mindset and shallow in our thinking that we and so caught up in ourselves. Like a guy, kid, his wife called him on the phone and says, how's work go today, honey? Oh, it was terrible. The computers were down. We all had to think. <laughs> Everything that God created. You like that? All right. She's my bodyguard, by the way. That bulge in her purse. You got it with you today? Oh, that's because your hubby's got the back door today, doesn't he? Huh? Yeah. I'd like to see him at a football game and a guy running down the field with that Barrett 50 he's got. He'd be taking them out. Big chunks of field, I'll tell you. Man, you and me. It's you and me. We always argue against God. We always, because we don't understand this great concept. We don't understand it. Look what he says in verse 17. I'll show you something else. He says, even for this same purpose, back to Romans 9 now, I'm sorry. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name declared uh, to the nations. Now I want you to see something here. God said absolutely nothing about Pharaoh being a bad guy. All God said to Pharaoh was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you to get honor and glory out of you that all the nations of the earth know who I am. And he's saying basically, Pharaoh, you can decide which way that's going to be. You can either do it as my friend or you can do it as my enemy. You can either let my people go and I'll get the honor and glory out of that or you can not let them go and I'll come down and make an object lesson out of you and I'll get the honor and glory out of that. You choose, Pharaoh. Nothing in there about him making him bad. Not a thing. 
You know what? It's the same way. Look at verse 18, going back to based on conditions. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Now, the Calvinists take that and say, see, see, poor Pharaoh. He, he didn't have a chance. Jacob, have I loved Esau? Have I hated? God loved Jacob, a man. He hated Esau. And because of that, he picked one over the other. No, no. The context is already satisfied. It's nations. Obviously, the obvious reference here is in Exodus chapter 10, verse 20, and Exodus chapter 11, verse 10, which is Calvinist's favorite place where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, I want to show you a little thing about your Bible. The Bible says, search the Scriptures. I told you before, I never met a Calvinist in my life who really knew anything about the Bible. But, uh, I mean, uh, I want to show you something here. Now, in Exodus chapter 10 and Exodus chapter 11, the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and He did. But as I already showed you, uh, he said absolutely nothing about Pharaoh being a bad guy. Uh, he just said, I'm going to get the honor and glory out of it. Pharaoh got to choose which way it went. Because God always sets the conditions. And you get, you get God's favor or not God's favor by what you do with the conditions. Pharaoh did not follow the conditions. Now he says in Exodus 10 and Exodus 11. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But I want to draw your attention to Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. I want to draw your attention, secondly, to Exodus chapter 8, verse 15. I want to draw your attention, thirdly, to Exodus chapter 8, verse 32. And then, fourthly, Exodus chapter 9, verse 7. And then, lastly and fifthly, Exodus chapter 9, verse 34. Five times before you get to 10 and 11, where the Bible says God hardened his heart, you'll find in Exodus 7, Exodus 8, Exodus 8, Exodus 9, and Exodus 9, five times that Pharaoh hardens his heart before God ever touches his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart five times before God ever touched. And not only that, not only that, you want to add to that, that God gave him two chances to repent without ever touching him by his own free will in chapter 5 and chapter 7. Five times, Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardened his heart. God, when it finally in chapter 10, God just took the hardened heart that Pharaoh gave him and used it for his honor and glory. Just that simple. Five. Five times. You know what five is in your Bible? Three is the number of completion. Five is the number of death. Search the scriptures. First man in your Bible, dies in Genesis 5.5. In the Old Testament, when they kill him, they stab him under the fifth rib. You ever see the word devil? Five letters. You ever see the word Satan? Five letters. You ever see the word Jesus? Five letters. Somebody says, why does Jesus have five letters? Because he died for you to have eternal life. You know what happens in the Navy when a ship goes dead in the water? They call it a number five shutdown. You know when any, 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 any aeronautical, whatever the thing is, the emergency channel is 500 megacycles or kilocycles. 500. You know what happens when an airplane's flying around over there and, it, and he, he's shot up and he's going to crash or he's going to come in for a landing? What does that pilot do? He flips over on his international switch and he yells this out. Mayday, 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 Mayday. January, February, March, April, May. Five. Five. Number of death in your Bible. Never a good number. Five times Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then finally God took it and said, five's enough because that fits into my Bible. I'm going to take it now. Now I'm going to get the honor and glory out of it. Sometimes it looks like God loses control, doesn't it? Sometimes we get so caught up in the circumstances of life and we look at things in our own personal lives or we look at things around us in the world or we look at things down through history. I, I've had many, many young Christians Ask me the question, well, why, 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 did, why did God do it this way? 
I mean, you know, it seems like it's very complicated. Why did God put all this, all this stuff in the world today? Why did God do it all that, like the way he did it? And sometimes it looked like God kind of loses control. And I know it looks that way when you just understand. But when you understand what I'm talking about today, and you will understand that God has a plan, and through that plan, he's going to get the honor and glory out of everything, it doesn't matter how it goes. You see, we get so caught up with the circumstances. It's true of your life. We get so caught up in the personal circumstances of the things that happen to us in life that it kind of it gets us off track of how we really see things. God is going to allow, now, given a lot of the problems we have, we have because we made some bad decisions. Let's face it. But let's just say you're your average garden variety Christian that just wants to serve God and love Him. And my verse for you is, all you that love God, you're going to get it in the neck. When it comes to Christianity and serving God, no good deed will go without being punished. Think about that for a while. Somebody's going to whack you. Somebody's going to go after you. Somebody's going to hate you. Somebody's going to go after you because you're going to serve God and God's going to use, the devil's going to use somebody in their life to go after you. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to do, what you're going to do is you're going to get so focused on, on, what's, on what's happening in your world, you're going to lose sight of the fact that, you know what? It doesn't matter. If you're right with God and you want to serve God and you want to do what's right and you love God in that book, it doesn't matter what the whole world says or thinks about you, let alone God's people. But you see, we can't get to that. You know how you get to that? You understand it doesn't mean anything with God in the Bible. Oh, I know sometimes. I'm sure we know back there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where the devil led a revolt against God way before it all started. We're sitting back there to God just sitting on the throne, you know, thinking, oh, everything is fine. Well, this is a good thing. Well, I'm going to, you know, tomorrow I'm going to go out and create everything. We're going to get this thing going. About that time an angel runs in. Your majesty, the devil's just trying to overthrow everything. He's got a bunch of the angels going to go with him. And we're going to have a real war up here. What are we going to do? And God says, oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. Oh, that's me. Uh, 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 I mean, what am I going to do? The devil, my friend, the devil, who, who I gave everything to, he's now against me. He's going to come after me. He's going to try to take my crown, my throne. What am I going to do? not how it works. God lets everything come his way. He never panics. He never says, what's that a thought of that? He lets everything come his way because he knows no matter what, ultimately, he's going to get the honor and glory out of it. He put, he put him down there in Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve are down there in the garden. And God says, we're going to have a great time. And he's up there in heaven. And one afternoon, another angel runs in and says, Father, Holy Father, God, you ain't going to believe this. You told him not to eat that tree. That old devil, he went in there and he got Eve to eat. And then Eve gave it to her dumb husband. And the whole thing screwed up. God says, I am now what's going on down there. No. Did God panic? Then if God didn't panic when all of mankind just got dumped into the lake of fire, if something doesn't change, why should you and I panic if God's in control? See the practical side of it? What did God do? He walks down in the cool of the day, just like he always did. Except this time, before, Adam and Eve were always trucking out, hey, 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 uh, come on, come on, come on, come on. Kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. Your hands are really sweaty. 
This time they're not there. They're nowhere to be found. God says, he's walking down through there. Well, wonder where they're at. Can you see God walking around? And I know it says, Adam, where art thou? But we get the idea, say, Adam. <laughs> Adam! <laughs> you know why God, who knew where he was, who knew what rocks he was hiding under, even though he tried to make a camouflage suit out of fig leaves? Doesn't it ever bother you guys when you go and go hunting and you want to hide from the animals you put on the same clothing that he did when he wanted to hide from God? And imagine God. Adam, come out, come out wherever you are. Adam knew exactly where he was hiding. You know why God asked him, Adam, where art thou? Because the same reason, a great characteristic of God. God asked Adam where he was when God already knew where Adam was because God will always give you the chance for you to tell you where, he, where you're at with him before he has to ask you where you're at. That's right. Oh, we got a great God. Why, if God wanted to do it, he'd have come down there with his Mossberg 1100 and, 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 and got a couple angels and turned them into bird dogs and he says, get them. And that old dog would have come up to that old fig tree, you know, and there's Adam in there with a little fig suit on, you know. <laughs> I mean, goofy Adam, you know. <laughs> his big eyeballs sticking out of the fig tree, you know. And that old angel, that old angel just goes. Oh, God goes, flush him! <laughs> oh, hey, I'll tell you what. Well, you want to know you're in trouble with God when God says, flush him! <laughs> and then you hear that. You know, it's got to be the terriblest thing guy breaks into your house. You know, the most terrible thing he's got to hear, you know, is that chink of a 12 gauge loading one in the chamber, you know? I mean, the most terrible word as a Christian is when you hear God say, flush him! And then you go, you hear that thing, you know? I like that movie, Mel Brooks movie, um, History of the World Part 1. <laughs> I love it. I think it's the funniest thing in the world. Especially when you got Henry XIV or Henry VIII or Louis XIV, I forget it was. And he's standing there and he's standing there and somebody runs in and says, Your Majesty, the peasants are revolting. And he says, What? He says, Yes, the peasants are revolting. And he says, Why would they do not? I love my people. Pull! And then a peasant goes flying across the sky. <laughs> oh, I'm not yelling now. I'm just laughing at my own stupid jokes, and that's even worse. I love it. You know what God did? God's always prepared. And boy, if you can't see the prophecy in this, you know what God did? God went over and get, killed him two things that were innocent. and said, you know what, Adam? Those fig leaves, camouflage suits won't going to do you any good. They won't even hide you from me. Because it's going to take something innocent to die to cover your nakedness now. And God, in preparation for the lamb that was going to be died and was going to cover our nakedness with the garments of our salvation, that's how God thought about it. He didn't panic. He didn't panic. He puts Noah down there. And God said, well, finally it's going good. It's going good. But that time, same angel. I, you know, after about the third or fourth time, you think God killed that angel? <clears throat> Yeah, but the secret is you can't kill angels, so you're stuck with him. God, 
Holy Father, God, you ain't going to believe this. The devil's taking over the world, and everybody down there is wicked. And there's big old sons of God down there. They're going to start something called the NBA, and boy, they're going to be really big in that. Those giants are down there, and they're going to, they're, they're, they're tearing everything up, and they're taking over the world. God says, oh, oh. All right, I'm done. I quit. Let somebody else be in charge. It just isn't. No, that's not what God did. And God didn't panic either, did he? My point, and I'm going to make a couple more of them because I'm having a great time doing this. And you need to hear the points. The point is this. If God didn't panic when his world went apart, why do you panic? You know what God did? The Bible says he come down. He looked at that thing. And he said, ooh, well, the devil's really got something going here, doesn't he? Why, well, he got the whole world loving him. I only got one guy down there that really walked with me, and his name is Noah. And uh, you know what? I'll just tell you what. Boy, the old devil, he really, he really thinks he's got something going. And here the whole world, the Bible says the whole world was continually evil. And the imagination of man was evil from its, all, everything. Now, you would think that God would bring in, you know, angels with, with big atomic bombs. You think God would have millions of angels with flamethrowers in their mouth, torching the earth. No, 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 no. God says, <clears throat> boy, that's really tough. Yeah, the devil's in control. Yeah, boy, he's really doing a good job. At it. Well, he's got control. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? Oh, I'll make it rain. Make it rain. It hadn't rained down on the earth anyhow. About time it rains. Saving it for now. It'll rain. <laughs> but you see, when God makes it rain, it rains. It rains. I don't know if you ever figured it out or not. I mean, I don't know if you ever put a pencil to it. I mean, the Bible gives you the parameters there. It's pretty easy to see. But I'll tell you what, when you figure that thing out, a Mount Everest is where it's at today, over a mile high, and it's 40 days and 40 nights, and that water had to come down 725 feet a day, 30 feet an hour, 7 inches a minute. That's a pretty good rainstorm, isn't it? I guarantee you, in two hours, the radius might have been a renowned was treading water. <laughs> but when a whole world went into catastrophe, God said, well, what are you going to do? Why don't we have it rain? That sounds like it's a thing to do. They were dead. He never panicked. He never panicked at all. Because he's always in charge. Because you know what? The devil thought he was going to get honor and glory out of it, but when God wins and kills everybody, he gets the honor and glory out of it. So then we go up to Genesis chapter 11. And here it is again. He's up there in the throne. Boy, things are going good. Pretty day up here today. Boy, eternity's a nice place. What time is it? Oh, there's no time up here. We're in eternity. That's right. Well, this is nice. But here comes that angel again. Have you seen what they've done? God, have you seen what they've done? No, no, no. What have they done this time? Well, they're building a tower down there whose top's going to reach unto heaven. They got this thing going down there, and boy, the whole world's one language, one this, and boy, they're going to take over this thing again. You better do something. He said, yeah, I better do something. He walked, the Bible says he came down and looks at it. He said, when the angel's there, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? He said, you shut up. <laughs> what am I gonna, why didn't you go with him when he left? You'd have been a lot better off. <laughs> what am I going to do? You say they're all one language? Yeah. You say they're all one nation? Yeah. They're all one in unity? Yeah. Hmm. What am I going to do? Watch this. They're building that tower, and down there's Joe Slavowski. He's, he's running the rivet gun. Up on 3-4 level out there is Bill Bonansky. He's running this up here, and he's doing this. And this Joe down here runs out, of, uh, runs, out of, runs out of bolts, and he yells up to Bill, and he says, Hey, Bill, throw me down some more bolts. But the time it left his mouth and got up there, God had changed it. This is where he changed the languages. And so when it gets up to him, it says, Hey, your mother's the ugliest thing I ever saw in my life. She fell out of the ugly tree and had every branch coming down. And Bill says, what'd you say? And God changed it by the time it came down. And it says, yeah, your mother wears army boots and she's ugly too, you know. And, and you know what? He changed the languages. And where they were communicating in one, now in what he did in that particular point, Genesis chapter 11, he set man back 6,000 years right there. One little thing, one little thing. 
Never panicked. Never got, never got. He, one little thing. One little thing. I'm telling you. And because God has a plan. And in that plan, God is going to get the honor and glory out of it one way or the other. And you know what? God would like for, for everybody to do what's right, but God knows they're not. God simply says, you know what? I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I won't have mercy on them no, based on the conditions. And God never panics. Why do we panic? If God wants to get the honor and glory out of your life, bad things are going to happen in your world just like they happened in His. He didn't panic. You ought to look at the travail that comes in your life. Now, obviously, I go back to saying if you haven't caused them yourself, but even in that, even in that, you can come to the point in your life, you, make it, you blow it in life, you make some bad choices, and you do some stupid things. You know what? Once you get it right and do what's right, God can get the honor and glory even out of your repentance. There should be no time that God can't get the honor and glory out of whatever we do, whether it's right or it's wrong. But we panic. We panic. God takes the people in the circumstances and says this, here's what I'm going to do, here's my plan, and you know what, you can either help me with it and give me the honor and glory that way, or I'll do it through you in spite of you, and I'll get the honor and glory that way. But you know what, you get to choose. Verse 21 says, one vessel of honor, one vessel of dishonor, but you get to choose. We look at Nebuchadnezzar back in Jeremiah chapter 43, verse 10, where it says, God calls Nebuchadnezzar, you know who Nebuchadnezzar was, don't you? He's the guy that came down and sacked Jerusalem from Babylon. King of Assyria came down. Shennacherib came down from the north. And Babylon came up from the east or from the south, southeast. And they came over there and they sacked Jerusalem, carried the Jews off into captivity, butchered I don't know how many people. And then God says, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Wow. You know why? Because it doesn't matter who you are, what you are, or what you think you are. You don't go by your own agenda. You may think you do. You fit right into God's plan. Pharaoh, that's who he's talking about here. He went in there, Moses went in and said, he said, Pharaoh, he says, God said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, I ain't going to let them go. He says, well, you're better. And what if I don't? Well, I don't know, but you're better. And he goes down through there and he goes back to God. He says, ain't going to let them go. God says, you know what, just do what I tell you to do and, and we'll see it. Because the bottom line is, Moses, it doesn't matter whether he's going to let you go or not. I'm the one that says you're coming out, not him. So he goes after him, you know, and finally God Brings the plague, does everything he's going to do. Finally, Pharaoh says, get out of here, go. And so they're gone. And they're, they're moving out to the thing. And, and Moses and everybody's just going, oh boy, God is great. Man, here we go. We're marching, we're marching, we're marching to Zion, marching. Da -dun, da -da 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 -dun, da -da -da. And then somebody says, Pharaoh, change his mind. Here he comes. Panic mode. Don't you have days like that? Don't you have days where it starts out when everything goes really well and you and God are just marching to Zion? Then you're running for your life. And Moses turned to God, does the same thing we do. He turned to God and he says, Now, why'd you bring us out of Egypt? You brought us here. Here we are at the Red Sea. We're trapped. Now, what we're going to do? And here's Pharaoh. Boy, what a fine event you got us into now. God says, shut up, Moses. What do you got in your hands? I got this big old stick. He says, reach down and touch that water. He reached down and touched that water. Boy, that water began to boil. And I mean, that thing just set back up there. You all saw Charlton Heston in the movie, didn't you? And the thing all just went back through there. And he says, wow, look at that. And then he, he, he says, come on, we're marching to Zion again. We're marching to Zion. They get on the other side. 
They said, oh boy, kumbaya, here we go, kumbaya, come on, kumbaya, the Lord, you got us through, and she's gone now, how are you, and off we go. Somebody said, Moses, look! Somebody forgot to close the sea. Pharaoh's coming right after him. Panic mode again. Oh no, Lord, what are we going to do? Here they come. God said, you know what, will you just shut up? Watch this. Hmm. Water comes over there and drowns them all out. God never panics. God never panics. Wouldn't it have been a great thing if Pharaoh, the first time Moses went, wouldn't it have been a great thing if Pharaoh would have stood up and said, your God wants me to let you go? <clears throat> you got a deal. I want everybody to know in this world that the God of Israel and the God of Moses is the greatest God in the world. I know we got a bunch of gods here, but they couldn't even lick his shoes. This is the greatest God there is. And even though I don't believe in him and I got my 500 gods, I'm going to let the people go. Why, well, he went down in history. He's one of the greatest men that ever lived. I always thought about men in the Bible. Even men in history had a great opportunity. Remember old Pontius Pilate? Remember when he was up there, when he was up there before the people and they had Christ right there? Now, to me, that's one of the greatest opportunities to go down in history you could ever want to go down in your life. He's got Christ, he's standing there on a balcony, he's got Christ right there. And he, he's saying to them, shall I crucify your king? And they're saying, we have no king but Caesar. You know, wouldn't it have been a great thing if he'd have taken off that royal robe that he wore and put it around him and took off his crown and put it on Christ and then bowed down before the whole world and says, there's your king, crucify me. Why, if he could have done the right thing at the right time and said the right thing, He'd have got honor and glory out of his life for God. But you know what? He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Pharaoh couldn't do it. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't do it. Shanachadib couldn't do it. And I'll tell you what. Sometimes you and I can't do it. Somebody says, what about the devil? I'm going to give you one of the greatest verses in the Bible on the devil. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. And really unsaved people too. You want the definitive verse on the devil? It ain't, it ain't anywhere but here. Proverbs 16, 4. Now watch this. Right in the context of where we're at. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. Look at this thing. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. See that thing? God uses the devil and has a plan for the devil just like he does unsaved people. You know why? Because at the end of the day, no matter what he tries to do, no matter how he tries to disrupt God's plan or how he tries to stop it, at the end of the day, God's going to take him like he took Pharaoh, like he took Shennacherib, like he took Assyria, like he took uh, Pilate, and God's going to get the honor and glory. They get to choose. Vessel of honor, vessel of dishonor. And boy, that's one of the greatest truths you'll ever find out about God. The practical term is simply this. Nothing will stop God's plan in the Bible. Not a thing. Not one thing will ever stop God's plan. He enacted it in Genesis chapter 1. He's going to wind it up in Revelation chapter 22. You and I are supposed to be part of that plan. You're supposed to understand that plan. You're supposed to know where you fit in that plan. You're not supposed to know what your job is in that plan. And you know what? Just like the devil or nothing in earth or nothing in heaven or no circumstances will stop God's plan, nothing will stop God's plan in your life except you. Except you. Except you, except me. Devil can't stop me. Bob Alexander will stop me. Devil can't stop you. All the forces of hell can't stop you. But we'll stop ourselves. We'll stop ourselves. Look at verse 21. 
Back to Romans 9, very quickly here, and we're done. Hath not the potter power over the clay, the shame lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? See that thing? It says right there that there's some vessels that are fitted to destruction, and in the same worth, the Bible says God has long suffering toward them, trying to give a chance to repent. We talked about the Noah's flood and how God come down and wiped out the world in Genesis chapter uh, <clears throat> 7 and 8. But you know what I didn't tell you? I didn't tell you he waited 120 years before he did it. You know why? Because he's long-suffering. He gave those people a chance to repent even though they didn't. You can't, you can't beat God. You can, God always ahead of the game. Always ahead of the game. Look what he says in verse 23. And that he might make known the riches... Of here comes, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, you see that thing right there? That's one of the clearest verses in the Bible, saying that thing is someday going to go from the Jew to the Gentile. That's me and you. That's me and you. That tells you and me that this thing can be applied about vessels of dishonor and vessels of honor. It can be applied to even me and you in the church. Now, one last thing. Look over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll put this in a New Testament context for you because Timothy uses the same thing when he, or Paul uses the same thing when he talked to young Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Start in verse 19. Here's what he says. <clears throat> Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, <clears throat> and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, <clears throat> but of wood and of earth, and some to honor, and some to dishonor. Now, we're in a New Testament now, see? That thing applies over based on uh, verse 24 that we just read back there. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. All right, Paul talking to young Timothy. The first thing he says is this, and boy, I agree with it a thousand percent. Number one, the foundation of God is sure. Nothing's going to change God's plan. It's a sure thing. And then notice the next part of the verse. Having this seal. That seals the Holy Spirit of God that seals that thing. Look at verse 20. <clears throat> but in a great house. That's the household of God we've talked about before. Seven parts of that household. But of the household of God, uh, people, uh, groups make up this house. He says, in the, in, in the great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but vessels of wood. Remember, look at the reference, or, or make the reference back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the judgment seat of Christ. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay and stubble. See? One of the world, honor, one of the world, dishonor, one of God, honor. But look at verse 21. No Calvinism to this. You ain't picked and chosen, one in, one out. Look at that thing, verse 21. But if a man purge himself from these. See that thing? You purge yourself from these, he shall be a vessel uh, unto honor. Then you can purge yourself from the vessel of dishonor. How do you do that? You get right. You can change your status. You can change your status by changing your attitude toward God, the Word of God, and changing the things that you do in your life and become a vessel of honor. Look at verse 21. <clears throat> Hath not the power uh, over the clay the same to make one lump a vessel to honor, another in a dishonor? What if God willing to show... I'm sorry, verse uh, 21. If a man uh, therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor. Back to 2 Timothy. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, watch it, sanctified, watch it, and meet, 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 M-E-E-T. Remember that little study back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, when Adam didn't have a wife and all the other animals had, had mates, and they're all male and female, by the way, and uh, he come back there and he says, it's, it's not good for man to be alone. 
And he says, well, I'm going to make a man, I'm going to make him a help, help, help meat. Not a mate. Animals have mates. Human beings have meats. M-E-E-T. You know why? Because God had a plan for Adam. And Adam had, had to fulfill that plan. And God knew it was going to be a plan. It was going to be tough at times. So God gave him a help meet, not a help mate. Because the number one thing in your life and my life is not a mate having kids. The number one thing in your life is having a help meet. Someone to help you meet the requirements to fulfill the plan that God has for you. And just like he gave Adam a help meet, the Bible says that you and I, as the bride of Christ, are being a help meet to Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means that every one of you, every one of you, every one of you, ought to be part of God's plan actively helping God meet the requirements of that plan by God, by fulfilling God's plan in your life and letting God use you. God had a plan for Israel and God has a plan for the church. And of course, preparing yourself for that job. My job as a pastor is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. It's real easy. You're told in verse 21 that you're to be meat for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. My job in Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible says they gave some pastors, some teachers, some, some evangelists. What, what are they for? It says very clearly down through there, for the, for, the, <clears throat> for the work of the ministry, for the perfecting of the saints, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's my job. My job is for the perfecting of the saints. Help you perfect yourself for the job that God has you to do. What do we mean by that? Learning the Bible. Getting the things in your life that you need to have. Taking every step, every aspect, and helping you learn everything that God wants you to learn to be everything you can be for Him. And then for the work of the ministry. Gets you ready to the place that you can take a piece of this work. Take a piece of God's plan. God saved you where He saved you in the time that He saved you. And it was overall plan because He had a specific job for you to do. He just didn't save you by accident. He looked into your life and through his foreknowledge he saw you. He knew what he wanted you to do. He wants you to be a vessel of honor, but you have the option to say, no thanks God. And God says, okay, I'm going to get on. You remember the whole deal. I'm going to get honor and glory out of everything. Everything that I made, pattern after me, everything that I do, I'm going to get honor and glory out of. You're either going to give it to me as a vessel of honor or I'm going to take it as a vessel of dishonor. But you get to choose. You get to choose. That's the single greatest concept about God you'll ever learn. Preparing yourself as a vessel of honor. Meet for the master's use. You know, I believe the judgment seat of Christ is going to be a terrible time. <clears throat> and I believe it's going to be a terrible time because I think that once we get off this planet, once we stand there before God in the, in the presence of Him, and we see Him, and we fully come to a complete realization of everything that God had, everything that God was, and boy, everything that God wanted us to do. And I think that's going to be the most sobering time for God's people that there ever has been in the history of the world or ever will be in the future. But the bottom line is this. The judgment seat of Christ should never catch you unaware. You should never go to the judgment seat of Christ unprepared. Because you can know now exactly what you'll know then if you'll just get in that book and find out what God has for you and find out what His plan is. If you're saved this morning, he has something that he has for every one of you that he wants you to do. Because ultimately, in everything he does, he is going to get the honor and the glory out of everything. Vessel of honor, a vessel of dishonor, that we get to choose. And God wants to prepare you as a vessel of honor, fit for the master's use. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.